on down to the library we're gonna have a blast we've got a book or two a tip or three it's the writing santa podcast you know them well you know they're true and we're so happy you're here grab some friends enjoy the weather it's who's at the writing center now let's ruffle those feathers Hello and welcome back to Who's at the Writing Center Season 2. I'm Elena. I'm Carissa. I'm Sarah. And I'm Kimberly. We want to begin by expressing our support for the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for racial justice in this country and encourage you to support and learn more about the movement via the resources we're including in the description of this episode as well as other links. I'm sure that you can also do, uh, there are many, many thousands of um, resources out there to help you learn more about the movement, how you can help out. But we also want to acknowledge that often simply expressing a statement of support for Black Lives Matter and anti-racism is not enough. It's easy to say a few words and then continue business as usual without actually enacting any real changes. Now, we certainly don't claim to be single-handedly dismantling the racist structures and academic institutions with this episode, but we believe that it's important to expose those racist structures and to understand our positionality as a writing center within and as a part of them. So in this episode, we wanna give some context for writing center anti-racist work and resources to shed some light on why this work is necessary. There are tons of resources out there, but the two that we'll be drawing from in this episode are an older piece, The Silence Dialogue by Lisa Delpit, and a newer piece, Readings for Racial Injustice from the International Writing Centers Association. The first topic that we want to talk about is the euphemisms for race and racism. So diversity and inclusion are can be indirect ways to talk about race in academia. So for example, even people of color can be used as an indirect way to talk about race and talking about when, so when you talk about people of color, you know, you may be explicitly talking about black people, or you may be talking about Latinx or Asian Americans or Native Americans and so forth. And it's important to just state it rather than grouping them up into people of color, which they are, but their individual experiences aren't something that you can easily finite into one grouping. They may have a similar response to or a similar experience of being dominated by uh, upper middle class white supremacy or groups or people, but their individual experiences are vastly different from each other. And there's no way that you can, you know, and especially because Black and Native Americans have faced a tremendous amount of racism and terrible discrimination that I'm sure that you've seen around that people are beginning to use uh, BIPOC, which is stands for Black Indigenous People of Color, to really be acknowledged that Black people and, and uh, Indigenous folks have faced a buckload of, of, of history of racism um, for many, many years in the U.S. What, what are the euphemisms uh, of race and racism are out there for you guys? I'll just add on to what you were saying. I don't have like a separate euphemism, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that like when people use the term like people of color, that's also like 
othering that entire group. And that's definitely something that we want to um, stray away from for sure. And I think that the majority of it's, it's hard as well, because I feel like the majority of people who use the term people of color, like really, it's not their intention to other that group. But I think that's definitely not an excuse. And that's just been happening for years, you know, just because you don't intend to be racist, just because you don't intend to other another person, doesn't mean that you're not doing it. So yes, I was just wanting to add on to what you said. Yeah, kind of going off of that as well, the need for explicitly talking about race and racism, I feel like kind of ties back into that because it's really hard to like have an explicit and focused and productive conversation on those things when um, you're grouping like the experience of different people of color together and saying that like those experiences are very similar, kind of the same. And it's hard to get really specific and find ways to take action and be actively anti-racist when it's just a collective experience and you're not focusing on like the individual and the uniqueness of each of those experiences and how that looks for example, for like black people in their lives, it's going to look very different for Latinx people in their lives and things like that. So I think like just the need for focusing in, like getting rid of that generalization and like focusing really on like the specific aspects of a person's identity, the specific aspects of their experience and using that to like have more explicit and more um, like upfront and productive conversations about race and racism. I think another contributing factor to like how do you have discussions that are explicitly about race, but are, you know, like able to be productive and like focusing on the voices that like actually need to matter in that conversation? I think that the issue that comes up a lot is that as a white people, um, white people tend to like get really focused on when people are like, okay, the language you're using is racist. It's like, well, I'm not racist. And it's like, that's not the point, you know, like, and I think that that to some extent needs to be a conversation in academia as well, because the focus is like, we're in a racist institution, right? So that should be what the focus is because of course there are racist people, but when you're using language that is racist and you're in an institution that has like these racist principles that it's still using that are kind of kind of like hidden, um, which I think is an important thing that we're gonna talk about in this episode, like. How do you make those things visible? And so I think part of that too is like kind of taking a step back and being like, okay, well, when people say that the language that you're using is racist, it's not like a direct accusation of your character. Like it's not really about you. So I think that that is another another aspect of maybe why this like not explicit language about race is used. Yeah, those are really, yeah, I mean, And I think that's something that is just like, I mean, learning about racism in history classes or about like in in middle school. I mean, I've I've had all of them be from white teachers. And so it's it's this weird, it's very disjointing and very like, it's it's interesting when, you know, white teachers talk about uh, explicitly, they, they, they just talk about when they talk about Black Americans or African Americans, you know, they talk about like slavery and like the Civil War and then like, and and that was it, but they don't ever bring in, you know, voices about it. They just say, oh, by the way, this happened. Like, oh yeah, we know this happened, but like you aren't, you're leaving out so many details about 
what has really gone on. Like, I, I think that in my history classes, at, le at least, they, they didn't really, they touched the surface when it comes to talking about race and racism because we were, you know, a high school and they were like, oh, they don't need to know about what really goes beneath the surface. But I, I think that there's a lot of um, power that goes into that, especially of just like, you know, preventing people from knowing more about a certain topic or just being very vague about when talking about racism. I'm just looking at, at the notes here uh, about too often white allyship uh, can turn to replicating the centering of whiteness and privileging of white authors, even in discussions of racial justice. Like that, that happens, unfortunately, often in conversations about race and racism is when white people start feeling defensive or when white people start like trying to contribute to the conversation, which of course they can, but it, it starts becoming like we're, we're redirecting the focus back to them. And it, it's it's whole this dynamic that navigate, especially in predominantly white institutions, you know, we're constantly navigating conversations about race uh, with other white people. So uh, yeah, yeah, something to think about and going forth. I was just going to add on to what Kimberly was saying. Um, I just feel like um, education, especially even at an elementary school level, is so important because I feel like one of the reasons why like racial conversations um, or conversations surrounding race, excuse me, um, kind of go back to white people is because they feel uncomfortable and they get defensive. And I don't think that like feeling of uncomfort and like immediate defense and like immediate white fragility that comes out in racial conversation, like in, why do I keep saying that? In conversations about race, um, like I think that immediately comes out because they are uncomfortable. So it's like when you, um, like you were saying Kimberly, like when you explicitly kind of say, or and Elena, um, like, oh, you're using, you know, your link, the language that you're using is problematic. They take that as like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not racist. I don't think that I'm racist. None of my friends are racist. I promise. Like, and like, do you know how many like white family members, friends, people I don't know. And like, they're, they just usually you get larger, you get bigger and you get louder is what I've kind of like interacted with those people. And I always have to like stay my calm and have be like, did I say that I thought you were racist? Do you know what I mean? Like not like that, but like in a better way. And like also that's that's just a whole nother level of like you are expecting me to be calm for you because you know you're expecting me to morph to your needs when you should be, you know, listening to others instead of them like having to, you know, be nice. And like, again, like just comes back to like centering around whiteness and, and that like privilege of being white. And it's just so, gosh, it irks me. But yeah, so I definitely just wanted to say like that education from the start so kids can be comfortable talking about it. And those kids obviously eventually turn into adults and like that comfort of talking about an uncomfortable quote unquote topic um, definitely benefit like the entire human race. <laughs> that was a super good point. Um, yeah, so I think just kind of going off of like this discussion of 
specifically academic spaces where there is kind of like a silencing. Um, so towards, there's been a lot of anti-racist literature about writing centers and about education. And one of the first, the first few, not really studies, but it's more about like her experiences working as a teacher. And so she, in the 1980s, this woman named Lisa Delpit, who's also a teacher, uh, wrote this piece called Silent, The Silence Dialogue. And kind of the main point that she was making in it was that there is this thing which exists in academic structures, which is kind of, it's like assumed to exist, but it's not really made visible. And she calls it the academic culture of power. So I won't go over like all the different rules of power, but we highly recommend that you read it um, and we'll be attaching it in the description. But basically, she lays out these rules of power, which are part of the culture of power. And she emphasizes making these structures um, visible in academia. And it's important to keep in mind that because this was towards the beginning of anti-racist um, research and work in writing centers and educational institutions, um, it's there's been a lot of changes and kind of shifts since, since she wrote this. But we, there's still some important aspects of it. So this, this culture of power is something that is rooted in like upper white middle class um, language. And so because of that, it's something that, you know, like upper white middle class students who are going into educational institutions, they already have that. But what Delpit is talking about is students who are coming from other cultures that are not the so-called culture of power don't come with those like assumed um, and pre-taught uh, aspects. So it doesn't, it makes it hard for them to participate in the culture of power. So what she was kind of talking about is that this culture of power can be seen in like what is called standard English, heavier quotes there, um, which like we can see in academic writing and in like academic literacy. And it often manifests in a racially coded sense in which academic writing is white coded. But to do this is to exclude people of color from the culture of power and to tell them that they have to like become white in order to participate. So this is kind of the issue that she's talking about. And again, there are waves of anti-racist work. So much like waves of feminism. So it's important to note that Del Pitt is writing this as part of the beginning waves. And her call for teaching explicit standardized academic English has since been challenged by the argument that even teaching that privileged variety of English contributes to its privileged status in the first place. So it's kind of like, how do we kind of dismantle that? And so more current arguments are calling for linguistic equality, which yeah, leans more towards dismantling the culture of power. But in order to do that, you have to first identify that it's there. So both arguments are emphasizing just making that power visible and not taking it for granted as the norm. I was just going to say something and ask if this was kind of how it can tie back to, you know, what we read in our 3090 class about, you know, uh, the reading um, articles and, and, and stories uh, where there is a multilingualism in it, you know. Um, I was actually reading an article the other day uh, titled, and I can't remember off the top of my head, which is bad. Uh, it, it was um, 
race retention and something along the lines. I will attach it in the uh, description if you would like to read it. And I'm so sorry that I can't remember. But basically, uh, they, they had these two authors. Um, one is a, uh, they're both, I believe, graduate students who are trying to get their uh, PhD or have their PhD. And one is a uh, Black, lesbian, disabled graduate student, and the other is a Latinx graduate student. And um, they both incorporated their stories about uh, writing centers and as, as people of color and also as like as people who had an initial hesitation with um writing centers because of the sort of dynamic um the writing centers at their school had with students like you know professors weaponizing writing centers or like feeling like a writing center like you had to come in and like have a sort of um an understanding of all the basic grammar rules and how to use a comma and all that stuff um but when i was reading it you know, there there were uh, the Latinx author. She she incorporated um, Spanish into the the article itself, and like I cannot read Spanish, but like I you know I didn't question it. I wasn't just like, oh, this is weird. Like, why why are you incorporating another language and all that stuff? Because I know that I have grown into like thinking that English is like a very dominant language when really like it's just. You know, I think we we perpetuate that, especially in the United States, we perpetuate that uh, without recognizing that we are, you know, there are so many other languages out there. And also, we are not the only country in the world. <laughs> you know, other countries have languages that dominate that country. But when we go to those countries, we are like, oh, you know, not making an effort to learn the language. And um, I, I, I know that academic institutions tend to um strive for the standard english and it's 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 uh i'm sure there have been arguments about linguistic equality but it's it's something that isn't as prominent i feel in my experience yet to really be like a a uh really a guiding point or a a a, a focal point when it comes to talking about uh, uh linguistics so yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there because I was just thinking about reading articles where you know maybe I didn't uh, understand the language, but I you know never questioned it because we were able to understand that like you know English doesn't have to be like the you know know all be all factor of your education. There are there's so much and people say this all the time and it feels if you to say now, but there, there's richness and diversity, you know, there, there is so many cultures to appreciate and, and like, it's very selfish of us to feel that it's, it's, it's such a difficult thing when we have to work with that kind of system in the writing center, at least for me personally, you know, you're just always, I don't know if I've ever come across with anyone who's written uh, in different languages. Yeah, just kind of going off of that, like, and, and tying back into, like, that culture of power, just, like, the expectation in a lot of universities of just the standard American English essay and how that looks and a lot of just grading patterns based on the proper use of English and the correct structure of, like, this, like, esteemed form of essay is just really it's something that I didn't think about before getting a job at the Writing Center. And it's now something that I see 
a lot of students struggling with just because um, it's not always the most comfortable form of writing for everyone. And it's also like, it's held very high on a pedestal for, I think, maybe a lot of the wrong reasons. And like Elena was touching on before, like the institution is very racist. And I think that this is one of the the biggest things is like the perpetuation of that and the fact that a lot of times that's not taken into account on like a grading scale, especially in writing. Like it's really easy to read a paper that maybe doesn't have the most fluid use of English or maybe it uses two different languages or the structure isn't what's expected out of this standard esteemed American English essay. Um, And I think it's really easy to abuse that power and um, like point out the things that are wrong that aren't in line with this like this very hierarchical in a lot of ways racist um, institution of the way things should be. Um, So I think like I know Elena also mentioned that like some of this racism is hidden um, and I think this is one really important place to look because it really opened my eyes to the the way that the institution in a lot of ways was discriminatory and just like really picking apart like what writing an essay in English means for a lot of different students and how that looks different for everyone and to say that there is just one baseline this is how everything should look that's one of like the biggest problems and I think starting with that even like that hidden aspect of it and then taking a look also at like the work we do at the writing center and how that how do you how will you be a part of this institution and also say that you know like the standard English American essay isn't really a thing that needs to be achievable Um, so just kind of like that back and forth of finding or like starting those conversations like in the writing center and then just branching out continuing until like we have the institution in a conversation. Maybe something that kind of relates to that is this idea of like how do we as a writing center support like multi-literacies while also acknowledging that like there is this culture of power and if we if we pretend that doesn't exist then that's that's doing more harm than good I think. Um, So I think I think, yeah, just being like trying to figure out how do you, how do you kind of not like toe that line, but how do you balance that? Because we, I think all of us as writing consultants have a responsibility towards our clients, towards the students we work with to be like, okay, they're coming to us in the writing center for like the specific purpose. And I think we have a responsibility to help them, but I think it's also like being mindful of, okay, at what point is our like help kind of like assimilative and at what point are we sort of reinforcing things like the the standard American um, essay and things that you know they that we can't we can't ignore that they exist but kind of figuring out how to work for the student first I guess rather than the institution while still allowing the student to like exist and I guess, like succeed in that institution um, and figuring out how to make that work. So that's that's not really an answer, but <laughs> I guess it's just like an issue that we as a writing center, I, I would like to think um, are aware of, so. I agree wholeheartedly about, you know, sort of the, as Krista talked about, like the, the sort of back and forth of like wanting to 
consistent like dismantle and like address like the standard English but also being sort of like as Elena said like sort of our practices can be assimilated you know we we there are ways that you can interpret our work as being perpetuators of the standard English or of uh, perpetuating like the the upper middle class white uh, uh, pedagogy and and that unfortunately is true. The writing center is built upon, you know, dominant party in our society. But that doesn't mean that we aren't constantly trying to address it, you know. I mean, I, I know that we learned in class uh, in the, our third, we were referred to as 3090, which is a tutoring, uh, tutoring writing class that we have to partake as being part of the writing center. And we were learning so much about ways that we can support multiliteracy because we do we do truly value it and want to push back against those assimilative policies which can erase the writer's own voice but we also have to acknowledge that there is a, a culture of power in the writing center and and it's such a it's a perpetual it's a consistent thing that uh, occurs especially when and when students come in and they um or when clients come in and they have know a certain audience that they have to cater their uh writing to and we have to honor that uh for the student and because we are here first and foremost always for the client but acknowledging that some of that um culture of power plays into that into how we sort of have to navigate consultations because you know their audience is a, a certain uh a group and their professor has uh guidelines or rubrics or expectations on how the writing is i don't know about you all but i personally get very 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 frustrated um when a client comes in and tells me that their professor asks them to come to the writing center for grammar help or for like work on the grammar and like even if their professor didn't ask them to come like a lot of clients are like you know like in all let's say the rubric like and every other box I got like you know score like xxxxx but then just in grammar it's like all the way down and I just feel like professors and just like like you all are saying like this academia like culture <laughs> um they like to just conveniently group this like othering or like not following that culture of power into like oh no no, no but your grammar is just wrong so like they, they would just mark down on that category and I, it's just so frustrating as a consultant to be like your writing is beautiful like you, like I can hear you and I can like everything is so clear and concise and like it there is literally nothing wrong with it. Do you know what I mean? And just because it doesn't perfectly like fit into the standardized American English essay, that doesn't mean that a professor is allowed to mark it down so low on like specifically just the grammar. And I don't know, I just, I get very frustrated and I, I don't know if you all have had that experience or like what you do because I kind of get in this like boxed position where it's like, well, I know that their professor is marking them down because of, you know, it's not a, like this perfect, like morphed standardized American English essay. But then on the other hand, I don't want to change their writing and that's not there. So like, I just, I get a little disheveled in our, our, the cubicle, if you will, <laughs> or the online, <laughs> um, oh goodness, our online consulting. 
but yeah, I just was wondering what you guys kind of do about that and like how you handle that situation. I mean, I think that like part of that, because I've definitely had that experience before and it's super frustrating, especially when you like look at the rubric and you just see that because it's like their ideas are solid, their organization is solid. Like, and I think that that's kind of part of something that we talked about in 3090 a lot was this idea of like higher and lower order concerns. And by like relegating grammar to this lower order concern, what you're essentially doing is you're saying like, well, grammar, like it, it's a small thing because it's assumed that like students already know that, right? So it's another, I think that's another kind of manifestation of this, this culture of power thing where it's like, if you're assuming that students like know this and therefore you're being like, well, this is a lower order concern. I think that is another instance where it's like doing more harm than good because then when they come to the writing center and they're like, well, I've gotten all these, like the essay as a whole is great. But because the professor has just been like, you know, marked them off for all little grammar things, I think that is kind of an instance where there's this assumption that everybody like knows these grammar conventions, um, which is harmful. So I think that what I have found is useful is just like making that not a lower order concern. Like that sounds kind of um, ironic, I guess, but being like, okay, here's like how, here's how you do, and like not just kind of addressing it, like not just marking up their paper with like red pen, right? Like, cause that's not helpful because <laughs> then you hand it back to them and then they're probably just gonna, you know, do the, like replicate the same thing on the next paper. So I think it's just kind of how do, how do we like make that accessible to students if they're coming to us and they're like, my professor is targeting my paper based on grammar. So yeah, I think it's kind of a slippery slope because again, you don't want to be like, you know, here like this is wrong and this is wrong, but it's like, here's why this is a like standard English grammar convention. And here's why in this context, your professor marked it off. I think that can be helpful to students, but I don't know if you guys have other, other experiences or thoughts with that. I like what you said about the different ordered concerns, because I think a lot of time that's the biggest issue that I hear from students in consultations is like my professor assigned this or like said this and like didn't explain like assumed everyone understood it and so then definitely having to look at like although it's not a higher order concern for your professor like it needs to be for us in this consultation and just really trying to focus on the voice despite the fact that you're looking more intensely at grammar um, something I always like think about if that's where the consultation is going is like how is this going to change the voice of the paper like will it change anything in the paper like is the author is the client comfortable with a possible change being made things like that and just like checking in and making sure that they know that this is only part of the standard English American essay like it has nothing to do with their writing it has nothing to do with their voice their ideas it's just a convention that their professor is requiring and hopefully the next one won't require it and just being like really clear and really upfront about like I'm not correcting your paper right now we're fitting it to the guidelines that your professor is requiring and we're also like trying really hard not to lose you when when doing that with this paper but yeah I agree with both Sarah and Elena it's a really really sometimes frustrating and like also very tricky situation to be in to have to like 
cater to that culture of power while also trying to make sure that clients know that it shouldn't have to be that way necessarily. I guess going off of that, like then thinking about when we're addressing things like grammar, kind of keeping in mind this idea of like what is academic language and how does linguistic prejudice play into that. So a quote from the Readings on Racial Justice source that we'll be including, which I felt was relevant, is the teaching of writing is never a neutral endeavor. It is never devoid of political motivations or outcomes. So just thinking about what situation we're in when we're, we're not exactly teaching writing because um, we are also students and we are at the same time kind of implicated in this position of sort of authority in terms of like, we are there to, students come to us with their papers and are like, hey, help me out. So yeah, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I guess like just kind of going off of what you were saying, just being very, very, and Chris as well, and Kimberly, everyone, this has been incredible. Um, <laughs> every, um, just being very, very clear about the difference of like, an academic writing or specifically that standard American academic essay that we were talking about before like genuinely I find myself pretty privileged in terms of like education and like the um, opportunities of education I've had and the term like standard American English essay is fairly recent to me um, it's only like kind of popped up in college or in recent years and I think that's very, very important um, for everyone to learn, for sure. Um, because, I mean, I genuinely cannot remember who taught me how to write. <laughs> but um, I can tell you that I, no one throughout elementary, middle school, or even high school kind of like portrayed that terminology to me, which I think is really important. Um, there's this quote that I saw that I was reading, um, but you've also laid it down here uh, in Delpit's article, where she says, they only want to go on research they've read that other white people have written. And also beneath that, that I also read and was like, oh, that's a that's really uh, interesting quote, that uh, the white educators have the authority to establish what was to be considered truth regardless of the opinions of the people of color and the latter were well aware of that fact and that kind of plays into um the culture of power of like the fourth one i believe the fourth is if you are not already a participant in the culture of power being told explicitly the rules of that culture makes acquiring power easier and the fifth one is those with power are frequently least aware of or at least willing to acknowledge its existence those with less power are often most aware of its existence so it's daunting for professors to sort of easily uh, require like a standard Americanized English essay, which I also didn't really know about until college. You know, I, I guess I wasn't really taught about, you know, linguistic equality or like the different Englishes or, you know, uh, multilingualism. You know, I wasn't taught that until 3090. Honestly, there was no one that ever explicitly talked about the ways in which linguistics uh, can often play into racial prejudice. So uh, I know this was sort of our longer episodes, but we felt that this was really important to talk about. And we will, of course, as writing center consultants, we are in a bit of a position of power and privilege to be able to talk about this, but we want to be able to, and not at all call out or shame our writing center in any which way, but we want to 
critique the overall concept of the writing center across the, the U.S. and talk about in the ways in which we that we in ways in which we do anti-racist work, because there are a lot of articles about anti-racist work in the writing center, but also racist work in the writing center, and begin or address that uh, address that topic in this episode as our start of a new season. So like we've said, there will be a uh, link and information in the description that has all of our resources, as well as a, a couple of organizations that you should check out for more information information on the Black Lives Matter movement and how you can help out. We're also including a link to our Reading Center blog, where we'll be discussing and annotating some of these anti-racist resources to hopefully make them more accessible and keep the conversation going in our corner of this institution. There is a lot of work to be done, but no work compares to the struggle faced by many Black and African Americans today, especially in the U.S. With that, be sure to stay safe, take care of one another, and this has been another episode of Ooh. 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 At the writing center. <laughs> Take care. Uh, we appreciate you all, and we'll see you next episode. Come on down to the library. We're gonna have a blast. We've got a book or two, a tip or three. It's the Writing Center podcast. You know them well. You know they're true, and we're so happy you're here. Grab some friends, enjoy the weather, it's who's at the writing center, now let's ruffle those feathers.